Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Trigger warning. The following episode contains descriptions of graphic violence and adult language. Viewer discretion is advised. I'm Danielle. I'm Max. And each Wednesday, we crack open a bottle of wine and dive into some thrills, chills, and spills. This is Innocent Till Tipsy. First off, we have a Patreon. Yay! If you are not on there, make sure that you join us because we're going to be doing stuff for spooky season. We hope we're like, we're fingers crossing on that one. Of course. Got some ideas. It is the time of the year. And then um, we have live Q&As on there for after our episodes. We also have polls. We have all sorts of things, additional content on there as well. And we want to build a community. We want to see you on there. So if you haven't joined us, like, please make sure you do. And our live Q&As are so fun. I love hearing from everyone. And it's, we of course start with the episode, sometimes digress into all things spooky, but uh, it's super fun to talk together and with our patrons. I love it. Super fun. So if you haven't already done so, join us there. Also, make sure you're liking, rating, subscribing, doing all the things so you don't miss an episode depending on where you hear us or watch us from because we are on YouTube as well. I've noticed a few people don't know that. So make sure you're following us um, so you don't miss an episode. And it also really helps us out if you rate and subscribe as well. Um, But yeah, we have a new episode. And this is our anniversary episode. And we are merched out as well. Yes. I don't know if anyone can see me. Oh, no, I'm like oh hiding God. behind my hair. I love this. I actually love this hoodie. Oh, is this the half hoodie? That's the crappie. Yep. That's Yeah, it's actually the most comfortable. So I never thought I'd be confident enough to wear a crop top hoodie. And I actually love this one. Like, I have worn it so much with my mom jeans. Like, oh, yeah. I feel like it hits perfect. Because it's it not, does. Like, bulky and like, yeah. Yeah. And I it's like comfy, it. I wear it with leggings all the time. Yeah. And it's light enough, too, where I'm not like in Florida. Anyways, not like sweating. Of, yeah. Yes. There's a lot of self-promotion for five minutes. If you're still with us, hi, welcome. It's nearly our one-year anniversary. Yeah. (laughs) Here's the one year. Oh, my gosh. Let me pour myself a glass. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm ahead of the time here. We filmed. I was going to say, for in honor of our one year, I know I've done this bottle before, but it's one of my favorite, like, $20, $25 bottles of decoy. I feel like it's usually, like, 20 bucks. Yeah. So I'm bringing this back. Cheers. Cheers. I'm still drinking the bottle from our last episode. Um, that we filmed today. So if I'm a little loopy, this is why. <laughs> we start early, like uh, 10 a.m. Oh. <laughs> it's fine. Cheers. Cheers. Pretty good. I have, I have to show you. Speaking of, um, what did you call her? Patrice. In, uh, <laughs> I have Patrice. A, I don't know if you can see this. Let me see. Oh, I, I love it. Mm-hmm. You need to get that made of like little. Little. He's so small. Somebody make a graphic for you. Oh, I little. love it. Little yeah. with the moth. So, so cute. So silly. Me and my crazy cat lady stuff. I have another one here. Embarrassing. Anyways. <laughs> um, One year anniversary. Exciting. Our first episode was based on the wrongful conviction of Ryan Ferguson and Charles or Chuck Erickson as he's known. And there's been some major updates to this case. I don't know if you're aware of it. I don't know if I'm aware of it. I can't wait to dive in. 
so we're going to dive in. I won't give you the updates yet because just in case you didn't watch that episode, I don't want you to feel like you have to go back. So let me just recap it because we're going to be talking about something completely different this episode. So don't feel like you have to go back and watch that episode. Stay with us. Okay. So here we go. These two men would spend almost a decade in, well, Charles is still there. So let's just, but Ryan would stay in prison for almost a decade for the brutal murder of a beloved sports journalist, um, editor, 48 year old Kent Heitholt on Halloween night in Columbia, Missouri. This was a brutal and fast looked like personal murder. Kent's body was found by his car. He had been struck 11 times with a blunt object. They believe it was a tire iron, but that object obviously was never found. And then he was strangled with his belt and only the belt buckle was ever found. So belt is gone and it was broken off and it was a leather belt. So just imagine. So brutal. Yeah. So brutal. And they believe this was committed anywhere between six to eight minutes. So it was a quick, um, The only thing stolen would be Kent's watch and his keys, which also doesn't make sense with the narrative of what they convicted Ryan and Chuck on, that they were trying to steal alcohol money on Halloween night. It just doesn't add up. There's no money stolen. Um, Kent would leave behind a wife named Deborah and their two children, his daughter Callie and his son Vincent. It wouldn't be until over two years later, like two and a half years, when the two culprits would be arrested for his murder, which was 17-year-old Ryan Ferguson and Chuck Erickson. It's because they didn't have, like, any real leads at that point, right? They it was hadn't gone cold. Well, like, and it's interesting because we are going to get into it shouldn't have gone cold. Right. It shouldn't have gone cold. And we'll, we'll touch on why it shouldn't have because there were common sense things the police should have done that they just didn't do. Um, so this, this conviction happened after Charles read an article Okay, about Kent's unsolved murder from where Kent used to work, the Columbia Daily Tribune. He reads this article and this just haunts him. Right. And he soon begins to work, begins to worry about how he might have committed the murder on Halloween night because he was blackout drunk. Right. And they were doing drugs, too. I'm pretty sure like cocaine. And he this leads him to obsess. He is having dreams about the case. And then he looks at the um, the sketch. And I wanted to send you the sketch because it does kind of look like him. And that sketch leads him to right. think, I know. Did you see the sketch last time? Let me no, send it to you. I don't remember. Pressure. It's been so long. Yeah. So I found out a lot more with this case this time. Mind you, that was our first episode. We had audio issues. We had all sorts of things going on with it. We so, had to start somewhere. You know? Well, we had to start somewhere. And that's why I don't want you guys going back to it because there is literally no need to suffer through that episode. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. I can see why this looks like him mm-hmm. in like in the eyes, the eye shape. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, I can see why he obsessed a little bit about it. Yeah. And especially I actually looked up his mental health issues in this and there's a lot, unfortunately going on with Chuck. So it makes sense that he like projected it. He overanalyzed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So because of this worry, he contacts the police and he tells them that they were partying on Halloween night. The police obviously bring him in, bring Ryan in. The police are telling Ryan like, Hey, your friend's selling you out. And, and I mean, he was, he was like, I think we might've done this. Meanwhile, he knows nothing about the crime, right? He knows nothing right. about the murder. He knows nothing no about actual the details. details, no details. And if you watch his interview with police, they are handing him details, which they should not have been doing either. They're trying to solve this case though. You can understand like both sides of it a little bit, but it's rough, ethically rough. And then there would be also no physical evidence 
tying either of the two to the crime, even though that crime scene was littered with physical evidence. We've got tons of fingerprints, I think over 17. We've got DNA evidence out the wazoo, hair, blood, all sorts of transferable evidence that just didn't link either of them to it. So it's wild. So this leads to a conviction. Ryan would be sentenced to 40 years and Charles to 25. We'll talk about the witnesses. Did he that, um, or he went to trial. Chuck. Chuck took a deal and talked about is way lighter. Ryan. Yeah. His is way lighter. And he also said that Ryan had been the one to carry out the strangling, all of that, right? Because from the, it's rough. That's it's awful. rough. It is awful. And there would be witnesses, which we are going to touch on later, that also one pointed the finger literally at Ryan in court, said he saw him, and that was the nail oh, yeah. to the jury right. for, for Ryan. Yes. Now, what if we told you there is reasonable evidence that somebody else committed this crime? There was someone that saw Kent, the last person that night of the murder. That should have been questioned and was not. I don't think I know this part. Yes, you do. We did it. We, I was like a sudden, like it was one of my last parts of the episode. And I'm like, it should have been first. And this is what we should have focused on. Now that I'm looking back at like what we should have done. So somebody, he was the last person to see Kent alive. The last person to see Kent on this earth. Yes. You know, I thought you meant somebody saw him do it. Okay. No, 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 no. He's the last person. He should have been questioned. Ah, so not only that, he's pictured yes. at the crime scene hours later. He says he went home at 2.20 that morning, yet at 4.15, 4.30, he's peering around a door. So nuts. He's like out. in the crime scene photos. He's in the crime scene looking at where Kent's body was found hours he came back to the crime scene he came back to the scene of the crime and yet nothing of his has ever been searched he has never even been a suspicious person in this case let alone an actual suspect not even a person of interest nothing and nothing was searched of his not his clothes that he washed that night after before he went to bed he washed those clothes yeah he just washes those clothes and then then he he comes back in different clothes he like none of his car wasn't searched nothing was searched his articles because he worked with kent were found around kent's car everything points to this person logically legally nothing points to him we are not lawyers however (laughs) everything points to this one person but nothing has been done now we are going to go through this we are going to look at the murder of kent heitold who this last person was and why police didn't question him and who his friends were in higher places as to why police did not question him. But before we touch on that real quick, lots of Ryan supporters do not believe that Chuck Erickson deserves a crack at freedom because of the choices that he made going in, turning in Ryan, the pain he inflicted on Ryan's family. Ryan also now kind of has a fan base in and of himself. He's been on the, yeah. the MTV show. Um, what was he on recently? It was a race show. What is that show? The Amazing really? Race. Wasn't he on that? Oh, really? Yeah. 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 But anyways, um, also not to mention, he put the Heitholtz, that inf- entire family, through the ringer with his false claims, yeah. elongating this. But here is the huge problem with this. Yep. Charles Erickson is up for parole this January. January 9th, 2023, he could get his freedom. And while I think he deserves his freedom, if he gets this freedom and he is allowed out and then parole goes on and and then he is cleared, well, not cleared, but, you know, he served his 25 years, all of that, this will never be investigated. 
Because obviously it's a closed case since he's been convicted. And so they're, they're crack at like actually pursuing another person would be like exonerating him and then reopening the case. Yeah. So he can't. Ken Heitholt's murderer has gotten away with murder. If this is how this is going to proceed. Ryan Ferguson's father is still on the war path with this. He has a change.org petition that we will link below talking about trying to get him clemency, something to get him out of jail in a different way so that they can then have that case tried, you know, like Mm -hmm. actually look through because the amount of negligence, obvious negligence, things that were done completely wrong. Like you always hear the husband did it. You know, the last person that you talk to that murders you is the suspect. Number one, start, you start, should, start with you start that. Yep. You start there. You don't start with two 17 year old boys that were blackout drunk on Halloween. That maybe like, had a dream. It's been weighing on them. Yeah. So we are going to dive into all of this. And more this time, strictly looking at the murder of Kent and then that who should have been suspect number one. But before we dive into that, let's talk about Kent Heitholt. Yeah. So I found new information about Kent this time. Last time I had to like scrounge. I couldn't find much, which is always disappointing to me when you can't find much. He's a victim. victim. Mm -hmm. Right. But this time I was able to find a lot of his co-writers, people, co-workers that worked with him. And they're all writers. So they put their memories into words. And so I wanted to share a little bit of that. So cool. Ken Heitholt was called Heidi by his friends and family. And he was known as a very kind, jovial, easygoing man. He was described as a six foot three, 300 pound man that was a teddy bear. So he's huge. I've seen him pictures of him and he's like... He like, yeah, other dwarfs, other people. Yeah. He looks like he was just like such a nice guy. And then that, but that's the thing too. He's so big. Why would two random strangers try to take this huge man on in the middle of a parking lot? Yeah. Seems strange, but he's a gentle giant. He was a prankster and he had a standard greeting of, Hey now. Oh, I know. He was known for always carrying extra food in his car for the local stray cats. God, we love a cat. Gotta daddy. Love the cats. Yep. Love it. Um, this is something that Michael Boyd, who we're going to talk about extensively, would actually mention in one of his statements uh, concerning the night that Kent was murdered. It was him taking mm. care of the stray cats. Um, so this was one memory that I found um, that was from Luis um, Pierce Dorch, and they had written it out. It says, One of my favorite stories about Kent came from a sports writer. He and Kent were covering something and Kent ended up spending the night at the guy's house. The only bed was in the guy's small child's room. He got up early because he thought Kent might scare the child when it, when it woke, he eased open the door to find Kent sitting on the floor, playing a video game with the kid. The child looked up and said, I like your big friend, daddy. (laughs) Like your big friend. That's so cute. What a cute memory. Isn't that cute? Um, Kent wasn't much of an athlete throughout high school, but his future did lie in sports journalism. He graduated from the University of Missouri School of Journalism in 1975. It's located in Columbia, Missouri, which is where he would later be found murdered. But Kent would move for work. He then married Deborah in Spring Hill, Tennessee in 1981, who he had those two children with. And then later the couple would decide to move their family back to Columbia, thinking it would be a better place for them to raise their children together. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Kent took his final job at the Columbia Daily Tribune. He was just there at the Tribune for a couple of, or a few years, like 96 to 2001. And I do always like to mention with this case, um, this happened very shortly after the 9-11 attacks. So the media really railroaded it. It was totally railroaded. And then I feel like this case was railroaded again because of Ryan's dad. I'm not saying that in a negative way, but Ryan's dad really became super dad in this whole case. And he took on his son, but we've totally lost Kent in this whole story. What happened to Kent that night? So I just always kind of like to mention that before we get into what happened the night of the murder. So it's the early morning hours of 2.26 AM to be exact on November 1st, 2001, when Shauna Orant calls 911. So she and her three coworkers from CNS Cleaning Services had arrived at the Tribune that evening for work. So they don't even work for the Tribune. They're just there. They're the cleaning and service, yeah. One of which is Jerry Trump, who we're going to talk about too. Because mm-hmm. we've, yeah. Jerry. Mm-hmm. So she stepped outside at 2.22 a.m. Remember, time is of the essence of this case. The timeline gets muddy. Oh, yes. so many. So she steps outside for her break, 2.22 a.m. And she's witnessing the shadowy figure by Kent's car. So she's like, that's weird. It's Halloween night. People are up to no good. So she runs back in. She gets her coworker, Jerry Trump. She's like, please come out, like be with me, yeah. you know, for this. When they both arrive outside, they do see two figures stand up behind Kent's car. Okay. And because they entered the light, one of which really entered the light, she would able she would be able to create that sketch. She's the one that was able to give the description to create that sketch. But she would also later tell prosecutor Kevin Crane that those two people who walked toward her were not Ryan or Chuck. She yeah, knows for a fact. Yeah, not those men. We still don't know who those other two men were, but it was not. But we know from the last episode, because of this, prosecutor Kevin Crane made sure to ask around this to Shauna so that she didn't say anything about it in front of a jury. So, the so jury she never gets to say to the jury, it's not ryan ryan or charles Mm -hmm. yes so he did make sure though to ask her coworker jerry trump and we'll talk about why he did that a little bit later but what you need to know right now is prosecutor kevin crane um was probably at that point in time he was and he probably still is very good close friends with michael boyd Kent's co-worker so Michael so Boyd, strange that they're friends. Very strange. Very mm-hmm. strange. So Michael Boyd was the last person to see Kent Heitholt alive. That night, he and a few other coworkers had been working late at the Tribune in order to catch up on work for the upcoming base or basketball, excuse me, season. That's what they were there for. He worked directly under Kent and he had had several arguments with Kent over his work. Don't know what that all entails, but they were not getting along. 
The night of the murder, Mike reported into work at about 9 p.m. after taking his kids trick-or-treating. So he's there late as well. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, time's so important in this case. So at 2.08 a.m., Kent has switched off his computer. It's shut down. He would still need that time to get out to the parking lot. And investigators say that this murder happened within six to eight minutes. So keep that in mind for all of this. Then 911 was called at 2.26. So we got 2.08 to 2.26. So she couldn't have been out on her break very long. She could not have been out on her break very long. This would happen. Yeah. Yeah. So here's where things get interesting. So first story by Michael Boyd of what happened that evening. Now this was conducted by detective John short of the Columbia police. This detective would later be found to have been friends with Michael Boyd, but he changes his race to white. That's his description. Right. Of it's not a mistake, right? That he's identified as someone that's white. And then he's actually not. Yeah, because Michael Boyd was an African-American man, or it still is, excuse me. But it's interesting that his friend would change his race. Yes. So he actually calls him at 3.30 a.m. on November 1st. Michael Boyd? Michael Boyd. So they they call Michael Boyd that night shortly after the murder is committed. 3.30, he's called to give a statement, okay? Mike says he left promptly at 2 a.m., okay? Walks out the back door of the Tribune. He um, talked with uh, Michael Henry, one of the other janitors in the area, for about five to ten minutes outside the Tribune. So that's taken him to 205, 210, right? As they're talking, he says that Kent comes out the door and walks past them towards Mm -hmm. his vehicle. Okay? Because there's like this little alcove area in the door. So that's where Mike still says he is. He's right by the door. So Kent walks out towards his vehicle. Mike says that he then went over and talked to Kent about a cat, a stray cat that had been clawing Michael's tires. I have owned cats for my entire life and I've never known them to claw tires. Or why at two in the morning you'd be like, this is worth discussing. Let's just go home from work. Yeah. That is it. So after that conversation had ended, Michael then says he went to his car at about 2.20 a.m. This would have been when the murder's happening. Yeah. Right. He'd been right there. Yes. So he the crime scene pick. Uh the parking lot's not huge. It's not like he was like far no. away or would have been no. far away from Kent or Kent's No, car. and he gave locations to the officers. Like, I'm not going through, I'm just I've condensed this. We're gonna yeah. link a YouTube video um in the bottom because he he will not only change his story five times, four or five times, five times. He changes his story five times, but he also changes the car that he was in. One of those cars has still to this day, never been found. Oh, it's blue or it was red or something, right? Yes. Blue or it was red. We don't know. um, Yes. And he changes, um, he changes everything about his story. Like it is, it is drastically different as time was listening to the radio or to a cassette in his car. He's just sitting there Mm -hmm. and then, yeah, no, there's just too many changes. There's too many. So to quickly go through it, um, he says that the conversation ended first story. He goes to his car about two 20. Mind you, Kent's already being attacked at this point. He noted that he, as he was leaving, Kent was entering his vehicle and he saw no one else in the parking lot. Michael Boyd saw no one else in the parking lot. Yet at 2.26 a.m., 911's alerted to Kent's lifeless body because he was gone at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Second interview. It's conducted by the police um, office in person this time, November 1st. So the very next day, that same year, at 11.45 p.m. So late interview, next day, right? So after working with Heitholt that entire night, Michael still stays the same with saying that he left at 2 a.m. 
That's consistent. He says that he talks to Michael, Mike Henry, excuse me, for several minutes. Then he says at 2.10 a.m., he gets into his car and adjusts his radio, playing about three songs. He then says he sees Kent leaving. So he pulls up to Kent as he's exiting the lot and holds a three to five minute conversation with Kent. Again, this is vastly different from what he had said. He was outside his car. He had never entered his car. The first story, he just Mm, went over to talk to him. I would say, I would say the first story is probably the most accurate. And that's when Kent was attacked for legal reasons. Who knows who did it, but the first story being the most accurate. Uh, I would say Kent, I would say Mike went over, started talking to Kent. Oh, about cats. Something, yeah, gotcha. cats but or something set him off about work because remember sure. Michael Boyd's articles of high school sports, which was yep. his demographic for the paper, those were all found in evidence by Kent's car after he why would Kent have like those under articles? Kent's weren't they like kind under, of like under Kent's car? Under not Kent's like he just car. dropped a paper. He had like his whole portfolio of like work like a folder is like kind of like under Ken's under Ken's car so why would that all be there yeah Yeah, it doesn't I think that's I think that's probably the closest statement to the truth is that he approached Kent something was said and Kent was attacked by who knows who but and and I would say that air quotes for listeners yeah yes um so he holds a three to five minute conversation with Kent vastly different from his first statement where he said he talked to Kent about the cat clawing his tires before he doesn't even like say anything about that. Then he states that he left the parking lot between two 15 and two 20 AM, which is also different than his first statement. He's moved up that timeline. And he says that there was nothing suspicious in the area. Interview three is conducted several years later on Valentine's day, 2005 by a private investigator who we assume was hired by the Ryan Ferguson family about 2 AM. Michael Boyd is heading to his car. He's now changed not only his, or he's now changed whether his car was parked. Excuse me. His car is parked in a completely different spot in the lot. He said he sat listening now to a cassette tape instead of the radio. Oh, right. Yeah. When he sees Kent leave. So he drives up to talk to Kent for about one to two minutes. Says he exited a completely different way than he said he'd ever exited before. And he would never go back to saying that he exited this way again. Um, says that he saw Kent's car lights go on and Kent drove off while he was driving off. So get this. The investigator then notes, we made this discovery last night. The investigator then notes that Michael Boyd becomes overtly emotionally. They have to stop and he has to gain composure before continuing on. This reminded me of that Amber Heard thing. You remember they ask her about TMZ and she says something about she knew TMZ was leaking the, the tape or like whatever else. And then she grabs her face and she has an emotional response to what she's mm-hmm. just said. She was caught. We noticed this was what happened last night when we were like looking through stuff was he gets this emotional response he's like and they have to pause it yeah they have to pause while he gains composure then they restart the interview and michael boyd restates that he pulled out of the parking lot and assumed kent was behind him so he's changed the story because kent's car never moved kent never started his car that night kent was dead yeah i think the door was he's like oh shoot i just made up that i saw kent drive away like which couldn't have happened. Yeah. He was caught. That's what I think. He was like, oh my God, can I take a break? Right? Yep. So 
He, the, the investigator then asked if police knew, if he knew that police knew he was the last person and why he hadn't been questioned, why had his house been searched for things, had his car been searched for things, had he been tested for things? And Boyd said, like, no, why would, why would they do all those things? And the private investigator said, well, actually, that's protocol. If you're the last person to see someone alive. Yeah. Usually this is what investigators do. And then Boyd says that um, he didn't know why they wouldn't, but he knew Detective Short was friends with Detective Short that night. Oh, yeah. And he also, this was said almost, I feel like, in a threatening way, the way it came off. But he said he was also, he also knew Kevin Crane, prosecutor Kevin Crane, who would be the prosecutor on the case for Ryan Ferguson. He knew prosecutor Kevin Crane very well and that he had contacted prosecutor Kevin Crane before his interview to quote unquote, make sure it was all right. Oh, for him to do the interview. Right. For him to do the interview. Yep. So like after he gets flustered, he doesn't know what he's talking about for a second. He's now like gone to this like defense. Like, by the way, mode. I know the, de- yeah, the investigator and the prosecutor, and the prosecutor so. on this case on That's this. Why case. I didn't get. Yeah. Investigated. Yeah. 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 And Kevin Crane's still a judge, by the way, wild for all his Brady mm-hmm. violations and everything else. Next interview was on July 24, 2005, conducted by lead investigator of the police force. This time he added that new car, totally different car. Um, I believe it went from a blue car, 1991 Cutlass Sierra. Now it's a 1992 Red Plymouth that he's talking about. Yeah. And he's sure every time he is absolutely sure. No, this is the car I was driving. No, this is the car I'm driving. I'm a hundred percent sure. So this time he affirms the first two statements i don't know how he affirms them both but he says he did say them that was it even though they changed but this time he also says that as he's exiting the building he sees two college-aged males near the dumpsters so he's now added in ryan and chuck right because they had already been arrested yeah they were oh yeah knew about them yep they've been in the media yeah yeah and he couldn't identify either of them but he didn't think that they looked suspicious And then the last interview where he's changed the story again for the final time was conducted by another private eye, most likely hired by the Ferguson family on June 5th, 2006 in person. Now he says he didn't leave the Tribune this time until 2 10 AM. Yeah. He just gets, he's just lost his way on these stories. Like they, they don't even make sense to the physical as evidence. No. Then listed, then listen to about three to four songs on the radio. He says, he so plus Ken, 10 minutes. I mean, at, 10, at, like, right. Him, yeah. And then he sees Kent leave. He says he go, um, and then he changes his car, whatever is, you know, yeah. now he's in the 1992 red Plymouth. And now he says that he sees Kent leave the tribune at two twenty. So they didn't leave like together until this is it. Oh, what's her face is on break at two twenty two. Like that would yeah. not add up. Yeah. yeah. So he sees him leave the tribune at two twenty. He then pulls up to his car, has a four to five minute conversation. This puts him well past the time that Shauna has already called nine one one. Nine one one. Yeah. Kent's dead already. He's not having any conversations. Like it doesn't make any sense. He then mentions that as he's leaving those two college age kids again that he can't identify. He says he almost hits them and he's scared that they're going to take down his license plate. So this has changed drastically, and that's why he didn't list it before, was he was scared that he'd get in trouble for almost hit, hitting them. That's why he didn't tell police about these two college kids. Yeah, right? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So I uh, didn't mention- Also, wh- what's up with the blue car? Didn't he, like, sell it, and that's why like they never- I mean, one, they never yes. properly investigated him, but also, like, that car is gone. 
So yeah, anyways, so they, you can just from a blue car to a red car, but it doesn't matter because it's not like they're going to go swab that blue car. Yeah. So here's his story. He says that he traded his blue car to Enterprise Rental. Um, as of 2010, after he'd yeah. given this story, it was still listed. The title was still to Michael Boyd. And there's no record of this from Enterprise Rental Car that he traded any car to them. No. So where the hell is the car? Burned and why well this is it like Off why is, in a lake why why is it ryan ferguson's father finding out all this information through private investigators and not the police like this is what doesn't make any sense when he's the last person to see because it's case closed because ryan's in jail and it's, chuck's in jail exactly it's so beyond bonkers so despite all of this evidence these contradictions all of this michael boyd has never been considered a suspect or a personal person of interest in this case no investigation into him has ever been conducted no search of his car no search of his house his fingerprints his dna has never been tested against any of the evidence concerning the murder of kent heitold and none of these statements explain why he was photographed between 4.15 to 4.30 a.m. at the Tribune after he had said he was already in bed. He'd washed his clothes. He went to bed. Yeah, except for he's in a crime scene photo peeking at the crime scene. So, yes. Yeah, so this is an excerpt. We read it in the first or the first episode, but I wanted to reread it again just to kind of get it through. This was from Ryan's civil suit concerning when uh, Michael Boyd was questioned and like why he had returned to the crime scene. So it says... And of course, we now have Kathleen Zellner on our team. So we are doing great. Like, yes. All the details come out. All the details. Yes. So Boyd has admitted that when he arrived home after the murder, he immediately washed his clothes and put on a long sleeve sweatshirt. Boyd has stated that he arrived back at the Tribune at approximately 4.15 or 4.30. When he arrived, he saw Heitholt's body face down. This is impossible as Heitholt's body was turned face up when he was discovered by other Tribune employees at approximately 2.25 a.m. The only other individual that knew Heitholt's body was originally positioned is the killer. So he was face, he knew, he yeah. knew what Did the, the killer would have seen. say that show that he was face down or face up or, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I knew there was something that was like, yeah, that's valid. He was face down, but the killer yeah. would have known. Yep. Yeah. Boyd has also stated that he saw paramedics and a lot of emergency lights at the scene when he arrived. However, the paramedics had left the scene long before 4.15 a.m. In fact, defendant Nichols was called to the scene at 2.30 and the paramedics were already gone by the time he arrived. Yeah. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make, ugh, oof. Just so far after the fact that it was poorly investigated to begin with. It's so... There's so many... There's so many... There's so much evidence here too, like physical mm-hmm. evidence. There's so much that could be tested, but just hasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not going to be like, I'm, I'm so scared for January to come because it's just not going to be tested because why, why waste taxpayers additional dollars? We already got our guy. So what's, what's the point? And it's like, this is everything. And the fact that I personally feel it's a cover up because you're friends with detective short, you're friends with prosecutor, Kevin crane. It's all very easy like you can understand why these grown-ass adults went so hard on 17 year old men like they this was so convenient for chuck they were really easy yeah really Really easy uh, Mm -hmm. to like pin this on yes so the night of the murder jerry trump police originally said and you can hear it in the 911 call 
they said Jerry Trump has no useful information. I mean, he wasn't the one to originally see the two of them there. He wasn't the one right. to give the police sketch. He doesn't really know what those guys looked like. And who knows who those guys are? It's Halloween night. Like right. everyone's all over the place. But, but they think it could be, could have been if there was somebody else, like bystanders that like happened to see something and maybe got scared or like, yeah, that's it. someone crossing the parking lot, like. I think it's a it was lot of other plausible reasons, a lot of other plausible reasons. So he suddenly, though, Jerry Trump has enough to testify as a witness. Like you remember, he got on that stand. He pointed out Ryan oh, yeah. in the courtroom and that was the nail in Ryan's coffin. Come to find out prosecutor Kevin Crane had a meeting with him concerning his statement. Jerry Trump was a sex offender with two years probation being held over his head when they had this meeting and Kevin Crane said to him, we're pretty sure we have the guys who killed Mr. Heitholt, but we need you to identify him. Yeah. There's a lot like it's wild. So then Jerry goes into, and he wasn't even supposed to be a witness either. That was the crazy thing. Originally Crane just said, you have to confirm like, these are the guys kind of thing. You won't even be called into court as a witness, but he was. Didn't and, his wife like send him a newspaper clipping? Yeah. He had like never even seen them before until he saw them in the paper. He, yeah. Like, and then later he, on testifies or something. He's like, yeah, I'd never seen them before. Yeah. And I saw them in a clip in a, like a paper clipping that my wife sent me while I was in jail. So yeah, he said his, his original story, I believe was he opened it up and he was like, oh, those are the guys that killed Mr. Heitholt. But that wasn't really the story at all. And he right. would later recant, he would yep. recant that entire testimony and apologize to Ryan. He said, if there's anything I could do, it would be apologize to you for like robbing yep. you of nearly a decade of your life. And mind you, Charles is still being robbed of his life. So I think uh, yes. Ryan spoke publicly or something on like, he forgives him. He understands that it was like the pressure or something. He's like been very forgiving in this situation to mm. both Chuck and to that witness. Yeah. Yeah. But Crane did knowingly withhold evidence from the court, which is known as a Brady violation. I don't know why he hasn't had any retributions on this because it wasn't just this. He withheld information on, but Shauna Orrant's testimony, she had told him, and no, I know that this is not Ryan or Chuck. And yet that was never entered into court that she knew that it wasn't those men. That was it that was, not disclosed to Ryan's defense. No, it was yeah. just Dan, yeah. They, they, the defense would have asked her on cross. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent on cross. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And now Kevin Crane is a judge, even with all these violations, but I don't know if they ever, like, I know when Kathleen got her hands on the case, she was just like, we're getting Ryan out of jail. And that focus, was her main yeah. focus, her main point. But it is disturbing to me that someone that's so corrupt, I believe as Kevin Crane is, is like in higher power, you know? Um, yeah. Scary. Very scary. So due to his guilty plea, Charles Erickson has had a much harder time proving his innocence in this case. And he didn't, he wasn't lucky enough. I feel like to have a father, like, I mean, mind you, I don't know his parents and what they've done, but like the, the fact, like I was Dude, watching Ryan's dad drove around with a car of Ryan's <laughs> face. 
and has a Netflix documentary like made about and him. and yes. Ryan's dad like what the video we linked I mean it is of all of his statements and you can find all of Michael Boyd's statements online I read through them all for this but there's a video linked to, that literally demonstrates and it's from free free Ryan Ferguson.com it is made by Ryan Ferguson's father he has actors everything he's trying to get his son he's like my son is not spending 40 years of his life in jail no 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 so like it's he's like out there someone... giving moonlit tours of the like the crime I... scene i mean he's yeah committed he to getting up... right out Prosecutor Kevin Crane, prosecutor Kevin Crane spoke at a university and he flew a banner over the university free Ryan Ferguson. Like he was not playing. He was like, no, I'm getting my son out. But not everybody has those kinds of that access to that kind of help. So, and like Kathleen, um, like Kathleen said, she's like, once you're in jail, once you've been prosecuted for something, it is so hard to get you out of jail. So, oh, wild. So like Ryan's attorney, Charles's attorney has been petitioning the court for appeals. He filed a petition in June of 2020. It was denied. They then went to the Missouri Supreme Court of uh, Appeals, which was also denied in August of the same year. But he already he pled guilty. I think this is where we're like getting that. That yes. So there's a couple options from here. He can either get clemency from Governor Mike Parson or new evidence has to be introduced that was not found originally in the onset because the police were either buddy buddies or they just didn't care in the case. So this is why we're sharing this story again. If you know anything, there is a way to contact the police in this case, try to get some information out to them, but also please sign Ryan Ferguson's dad's, the change.org petition to get Charles out of prison. This, this is the end. This is, we are at the end. This is being released in October. It is January. He's going to get out of prison. And wow, <laughs> like it's not gonna Kent Heitholtz real the killer. bridge. No justice that's, for Kent. That's it. I'd also encourage you if you are even the least bit interested in this case, if you live in Missouri, if you know anything concerning this, head over to freecharleserickson.com. Have a look at the court documents that are provided. Um, there are court documents there. There's crime scene photos. There's all sorts of things um, that you can kind of look through yourself. I feel like this is a case where you feel like you're screaming into the void and still nothing's been done. It's wild to me that Ryan has been freed. Charles is still in prison. Nothing has been done to investigate. Even the people that are higher up in this case that have been looking into this case that have obviously just at a glance of it, just totally screwed this case over. Like, yeah. And again, that's why Kent gets lost in his own case because there's been so many other side story issues instead of justice for Kent, like solving it actually. Yes. And so I wanted to say, I think we need to, thank the unsung heroes of this case which were the reporters and the editors of the columbia daily tribune they are doing an amazing job of upholding ken's legacy um upholding his memory but they also are doing investigative journalism constantly on this case and their perseverance to this case has been unparalleled except for i would say ryan's dad but yeah we're at the end of the line with this case. So we're at our one year anniversary. This was the case we started with. There's been some updates. He could be released, which is great, but we want him released for the right reasons. We want him exonerated from this entire nightmare, <laughs> literally a oh, nightmare. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
So I wanted to share the story again. This isn't obviously the full of it. There's a Netflix doc dream killer. Is it dream killer? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, that was done by Ryan's dad. Um, but yeah, these are the updates that we have at this case and it's crazy. It's crazy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. And you will be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And what I love about BetterHelp is that you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your therapist. And they respond with timely and thoughtful responses. And you can schedule your weekly video or phone sessions so you don't have to sit at an actual therapist's office. You can do therapy wherever. I love it because they have such a broad range of things that they can talk about and are experts in. So if you feel like something's overwhelming you, like I know right now with me, content seems to be overwhelming me forever. I'm always distracted by the office or scrolling on TikTok for forever and not really paying attention to what's going on within me. So I feel like that's been super helpful. Yeah. And if it's not your match, they'll match you with someone else. So I know I had to try with one therapist and then I switched to another therapist that was a better fit for me. It's also way more affordable than offline therapy and financial aid is available for those who may need it. Join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health by visiting betterhelp.com slash ITT. That's betterhelp.com slash ITT. And BetterHelp has a special offer for ITT listeners. You'll get 10% off your first month if you go to betterhelp.com slash ITT. Again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash ITT. Well, we will be talking more about this on our Patreon this week. So make sure that you are joining us there, joining our community. Um, we do have additional content there and we will be talking about it all there, but just wanted to do a quick run through because this is kind of what we started on. And we, uh, we at Innocent Tulipsy, we do really love a good wrongful narrative. <laughs> the Johnny Depp, Amanda Knox. What else have we touched on? That was like uh, wrongful narrative. I know there's so many. And Star Rock. Yep. Yes, the Star Rock murders. So we've touched wow. on a lot. So lots of wrongful convictions. Lots of wrongful convictions. So just a, a quick refresh, but also more information on what's going on, what did happen, and where we are now. It's yeah. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Crazy, crazy. Crazy. All right. Well, what a ride. What a great year. And then for the next year. So mm -hmm. cheers. Cheers. Till next time. Hoda Media Production. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.